Hell's Half Acre, and the girls who allowed it to thrive. Warning, this podcast may contain content that some may find triggering. Also, this podcast is in no way trying to glorify the life or lifestyle of the subject, but rather document it for educational, historical, and artistic purposes. Hello, my name is Summer, and I am your host, and this is Paying For It. I got someone between my legs, I'll make a dead man come on. I got someone between my legs, I'll make a dead man come on. to episode two of Paying For It. Thank you for being here. Last week I introduced you to the queen of Hell's Half Acre, Molly Porter. Today we'll be taking a deeper look into Hell's Half Acre and what it was like as a red light district and the real reason why it was shut down. We will be also talking about some of the ladies who worked within the acre. Today might be a bit of a longer one, so grab a snack, a cocktail if of age, a mocktail, a coffee, or whatever you fancy, sit back, and get ready to be transformed back to the 1800s, to a place of lawless partying, and with that, let's get started. Welcome to Hell's Half Acre. So last week we covered the queen of Hell's Half Acre, Molly, Mary Porter, did I call her Molly earlier? And during my research, I almost didn't think I would be able to pull enough information together to actually get an entire episode on Mary, which actually made me so frustrated because we have a very successful businesswoman of our history and little to no information can be found on her, which if you don't know, happens a lot to women in our history. And it was even worse for the ladies the society considered fallen. I could find a ton of research on the men who ran through Hell's Half Acre. Gambling was super prevalent within the acre, of course. But let me remind you, it was not legal, but tolerated just like prostitution was. We celebrate the men of sin, but bury, shame, and seclude the women of sin within our history. It comes to no surprise that in all of the articles and research, I found they were all centered on the men. The gambling, the shootouts, and the drinking. Some chose to only mention the ladies and the brothels vaguely in one or two sentences. Some chose to write about them within a paragraph. Or others dedicated small chapters that really focused on the men that visited the brothels. None ever put in the work to find anything about the ladies. Which seems a shame, as they are the real reason that Hell's Half Acre survived and did as well as it did. The ladies drove the business, paid their dues, and did it all while being totally shit on by society. All because we have been taught that they are victims. They lived a hard life and we should not celebrate and we should mourn them. 
However, if we just take a look into that, that's not really the case. So my saving grace in research for Mary came to me in the form of a thesis written by a woman focused on the woman within the acre. Let me tell you, it may be my favorite thing I have ever read. This is a scholarly article written in 2014 by Jessica Michelle Webb. It was perfect. She not only did the research on Mary, but she put in the work finding information on a lot of the ladies within House Half Acre. Her intro captivated me because she, she started by stating why the women of the acre are so important, but she threw scholarly shade towards the other historians within the field who scraped over how important the women were. It was such a good intro because I was like, yes, girl, I live for this kind of pettiness. The rest of the thesis was so informative and lovely to read that I felt, wow, I have to appreciate this some way. I wanted to do a breakdown of Webb's work in her thesis titled, They Sold Their Bodies, Prostitution, Economics, and Fallen Women in Fort Worth, Hell's Half Acre, 1876 to 1919. What the hell is Hell's Half Acre? Well, in order to fully understand the acre, we have to go back to a, the very beginning. It stems from the Chrisholm, Chrisholm Trail? It stems from the Chrisholm Trail, which is a famous cattle trail. Then Major, Major Ripley Arnold, who founded Fort Worth on the south side of the Trinity River, started it as a military camp, but it vastly grew into a village. By 1870, it was the major stop on the cattle trail. With the amount of men coming through, it created a demand for gambling houses, saloons, and brothels. That Fort Worth was very willing to supply, creating Hell's Half Acre, the red light district of Fort Worth, becoming a bigger attraction with the opening of Texas and Pacific Railroad in 1876. The railroad stopped right smack dab in the front of Hell's Half Acre. Like you literally, train pulls up, you come out, Hell's Half Acre. You're in party zone allowing the acre to really thrive. And I kind of touched on this last episode, but um, where I was so fortunate to stay downtown Fort Worth was on top of the TNP uh, train station stop. So when I tell you I walked out of the apartment to Hell's Half Acre, I mean it. I walked right into Hell's Half Acre. The acre generated a lot of money. The saloons and brothels were generating huge profits and very prestigious businessmen were known to have connections within the acre, specifically with the saloons and brothels. Even though the vice districts, especially Hell's Half Acre, was generating a lot of economic growth within and outside of the acre, the general public looked at the acre as morally wrong and violence. And don't get me wrong, it was violence, very violence. But they especially hated the prostitution, considering it a social evil. So within the acre, people are partying. When I say that, I mean they are partying. This was a time period that anything goes wild, wild west. Gambling was allowed within the gambling houses where cowboys could drink until they dropped, or maybe they preferred to spend their last dollar on just one more game. This is when they'll hit it big. Lose, get mad, and start a shootout. The Acre was a party, but it was a very dangerous place. 
shootouts all the time. <laughs> but what really drew the crowd and the money was the ladies. The ladies within the acre lived a hard life and died even harder. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Living within the acre was brutal. But to be honest, the entire time period couldn't be easy to live through in or out of the acre. A lot of Webb's findings of the woman did come through searching court documents and archival of newspapers. We can only really see some of the ladies' lives through their police records or death certificates. We don't really get to see those ladies casted in the best of lights. Not that that's their fault though, just the facts of the time. So of course, when there's a party, there's a neighbor who is pissed off about it. And this case, the townspeople were the jealous, angry neighbor. Specifically, the woman causing the general public outcry for reform. So the main argument that Webb presents in her thesis is that reform is not the cause for the shutdown of Hell's Half Acre but money. It's no secret that money drives everything. That was no different back in the day. It just wasn't. Money was everything. Money is still everything. Everyone wants money. Money, 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 money. <laughs> okay, so recap. We have a town on one side. It's like, fuck yeah, let's party. We've got booze, gambling, girls. Then on the other side of town, it's like churches, proper businesses, and respectable people who are like, no, this has got to stop. It is way too fun. I mean, dangerous. We have to put an end to it. Right. So if the townspeople and the general public didn't like it and voted and worked to get rid of it, why did it stick around for so long? Well, that's because Hell's Half Acre was bringing in the money, honey, for the city of Fort Worth. The money they were getting from the acre was a lot. It was funding pretty much everything back then. I mean, we can thank the acre for Fort Worth becoming what it is today. So the city was not about to put an end to their moneymaker no matter how much they agreed or disagreed with the general public. So they really capitalized on it. Gambling and liquor brought in money, but nothing like the brothels and saloons. They knew they couldn't legalize it without an entire outcry from the churches and the ladies in the reform. Allowing for them to find, so this allowed them to find the ladies anywhere between five for prostitution and up to 200 for madams, really generating a lot of money for the city. This was big money back then. Just, you know, it isn't, it's, $5 doesn't seem like a lot now, but it was a lot back then. The ladies kind of looked at it as the price of business. And if it, if a girl couldn't pay her fine, she would normally be arrested and sit in jail for a bit. I think it really just depended on the sheriff, cop on duty, on how long they sat. However, they never arrested any men for participating. The only time they would get a fine is if they were seen in public with a, a prostitute. And that's only if you pissed a cop off, really. Which created this horrible isolation of the woman who lived within the acre. No lady outside of the acre would be caught dead within the acre, let alone talking to any of the women who worked there, for fear that the society would say, would then say that they were a prostitute themselves thus shunning them. It was used as a weapon which people could control others. For example, 
Lucilla Kirby's husband, W.F. Carpenter, took her to a house of prostitution and abandoned her. Carpenter, this asshole, then filed for divorce, claiming that she was unfaithful to him and worked as a common prostitute. Although Kirby didn't Although Kirby denied all of his claims, Carpenter was granted the divorce and was left and she was left with nothing but a reputation as a prostitute. Thus, sadly, she chose to end her life rather than work in the sex trade. If you entered the acre as a woman, you pretty much were saying, I'm here to stay. Even if you just wanted a damn drink, didn't work that way that for women back then. The men, however, could come and go. No one would think about saying a peep about them. No wonder the proper ladies were so damn angry. Driving Webb's second point, that the real reason the ladies within the acre lived a bad existence isn't not, is not their profession itself, but the isolation that came along with it. The acre was crazy. I mean, this is the wild, wild west we're talking about. And yes, I know it's Texas and Texas the South, but parts of Texas were really lawless and ruled by cowboys and anything goes, especially in the acre. And the women in the district lived just as hard. Words of Emmeline Gooden, she terror of the third world, before she left Hell's Half Acre, she said, we die hard. And she's right, they did die hard. Everyone died hard in the acre. Did they die hard because of their profession or the stigma and social outcasting that came with it? On one hand, becoming a prostitute was freeing. You could have a drink, gamble, be treated with a certain type of respect from men. I'm not going to say they gave you respect because that just was not, it just, they did not respect anybody. Men back then just, yeah. Let's talk about today. You know, you can I, I'm sure we can imagine how it was back then. So when I say respect, it was a certain type of respect. They no longer looked at you like someone's potential property or property. To be a woman back in the this time, yeah, it wasn't great. Prostitute or not. On the other hand, you also were losing freedom as well. You no longer could be part of social society. You would always carry that scarlet red letter. You could never shed that label as a fallen dove, which is like, yikes. Now granted, now, not all ladies chose this life. Some were definitely forced. And for those who didn't get forced, whether it was from a husband, family, or other circumstances, I'm sorry your choice got taken away from you. It's very sad in a situation to get your choices taken away from you. We aren't ever going to know the real number of women who chose life and those who were forced. However, chosen path or forced, I refuse to pity them or look down on them in any way. My hopes for this is to help humanize these ladies. Some thrived, some lost themselves. Those who lost themselves did it because they were no, there was no way out. They had nowhere to go after. Even if they chose to reform, they were choosing a life where they would always be looked down as down upon, unlovable and dirty. They choose to stay in the acre. They would age out of brothels and lose the protection that came along with working under a madam. Aging out at 25 cut your income by a lot. So a lot did fall to drugs and the drug of choice at the time was opium. <laughs> Get this, the popular opium was morphine. Can you imagine just people out there just their party drug, not weed, 
not coke. No, we're out here hyped up on morphine. Many girls in the acre were addicted to morphine. Some, like Georgia Harris, took it for fun. And others, like Roxanne Allen, saw it the easiest way to kill themselves. According to Webb, a popular argument that has appeared in both current studies of prostitution and, and contemporary accounts, like Fort Worth's newspapers, is that these women become addicted to alcohol and drugs to escape their tragic lives. However, conveniently, this argument is never never applied to the men of the vice. So to make it cl that clear, the ladies of vice are viewed as wretched, piteous, and soiled for using drugs and alcohol. But the men of vice districts benefit socially from the same things. So even the women who could have enjoyed alcohol and recreational drug use, just like the men, however, because of their position in society due to their gender, their decisions had to be seen as tragic and depressing. So what if they could have left without the stigma? What then? Would they have died so hard? How many overdose deaths and suicides could have been avoided? if they could have retired and rode off in the sunset. I can't be certain, but I'm pretty confident it would have been a lot. It was never the job itself that caused the woman to live and die hard. Nope, it was society, of course. What else is new? People meddling in other people's business. Like always, that hasn't changed. Just a reminder that if the woman could have left the acre and changed way of life like men could, maybe the history on prostitution would look a little different. However, the reform movements, they just couldn't have that. Women in church outcry for reform as they felt the acre and the women within were a danger to, a, to the little girls in the city as they felt that they could influence them, lead them astray. I wonder why they were so worried about that anyways. I mean, if the life that the woman led back then in the acre was so horrible. Why would the woman on proper society be afraid that their little girls would stray towards the acre or be curious about the acre? Is it because that was the entertainment district? And as we get a little bit older and want to have a want to live our own lives, that it would have called to some girls or a lot more girls than we want to admit or just a lot of people in general. I mean, let's be honest here. Partying happens even now. We talk about how college days are your time to party, have fun and live that life for a little bit before you graduate and settle down and move on from that lifestyle. So if we think about it, the girls who are going to the acre this was just like their college days. And if they didn't get married, which some of them did get married and leave the, the life behind and were able to live on happily, some weren't. But that could go the same for today. Some people can leave the partying days behind them. Some cannot. Okay. Back to the story. Reform movements tried hard to get brothels and the acres shut down. 
In the 1870s, reform movements against the red light districts began a 40-year struggle between the acre and reform. So who won? I'm sure your brain is saying reform, duh. That's why we don't have red light districts everywhere. Nope. They tried, but the efforts were wasted as the acre was too financially important to Fort Worth to be removed. Even when the reform changed tactics from a social evil to a social hygiene movement, and then in 1914, a social hygiene association, this was a way to organize nationally instead of city-to-city basis. This was in the hopes that they could shut down districts, not because of social evil, but because it was a public health issue, blaming vice for the spread of venereal, venereal diseases. But even still, they did that did not change anything for those within the vice, especially those living within the acre, as it was still an important moneymaker for the city. Their trusty fines and fees system really was keeping Fort Worth alive. So what brought it down? Because we know something did, right? You're right. It was brought down, but only because the city got offered, for you guessed it, more money. On August 22nd, 1917, Camp Bowie opened officially a new military base, which brought over 20,000 soldiers to Fort Worth to live and train. At this time, Hell's Half Acre was still thriving, honestly, probably more than ever with the increase of soldiers. But around this time, the Selective Service Act of 1917 was introduced, and the main purpose was to allow contraception and to be used to raise an army, aka the draft. But it also contained two sections ordering the suppression of brothels within five miles of military camps and bases. So when Fort Worth lobbied for the Camp Bowie to come to Tarrant County, it was believed that the commercial advantage to the city would be tremendous. Hell's Half Acre was valuable to Fort Worth and generated a good amount of revenue, but with Camp Bowie, it offered much more financial gain than the acre could. Thus, when the camp moved in about three miles west of the acre, it was the beginning of the end of Hell's Half Acre, finally able to accomplish what reforms couldn't for years. So Camp Bowie officially called for the shutdown of Hell's Half Acre in 1919 because of the threat that prostitution held for the soldiers on the, on the base. Our poor soldiers. They can't help themselves but find themselves in the acre. The major threat against the soldiers was venereal diseases. So as World War I began, the military started targeting red light districts and prostitution, labeling them as disease vectors and driving them out of areas near military camps. Again, placing all of the blaming on the woman, and never speaking about the men who took part in spreading said diseases. And I would like to point out that those in the military still today have a 66% higher chance of contracting an STD than those outside. I wonder if it really was the district's fault on why STIs are still a huge part of the military. Was it the woman? Was it? 
you tell me. In March 1918, Fort Worth law enforcement and military police combined had the most sweeping anti-vice crusade ever to put into ex execution in Texas. According to Fort Worth's records, Starting in early 1918 and continuing into 1919, the police and army arrested white slavery owners, madams, and prostitution until Fort Worth and the U.S. military was content with the city. And according to the city, by 1919, the district had been completely removed. So, the moral of the story is, Fort Worth was founded on prostitution. And although they like to kind of sweep that under the rug and pretend that that's not the case, the facts are written in the history of Fort Worth, in the newspapers and the court transcripts. So yeah, they may have lived a harder life, more because of the shame that followed the ladies than really what they were doing. It's a real shame that we don't attempt to give them any respect nowadays. Not even walking downtown Fort Worth in Hell's Half Acre do we talk about any of the ladies that drove business to Fort Worth. Only one single plaque is placed, only barely mentioning prostitution, and not even attempting to talk about the ladies of Hell's Half Acre. What a shame, but also what a slap in the face to the ladies who put in the fucking work to help build Fort Worth. So remember, the town you walk in today most likely has a rich history, and I bet if you dig a little deeper, there are roots expanding from the ladies doing work back in the day. Okay, so let's talk about the ladies of the acre and what we know of them. To be honest, we don't know much about the ladies. We just don't. It, one, because this was in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and two, the ladies were considered the lowest of low of society in the eyes of that era, and kind of still today. So nobody took care to document the ladies of the acre. The ladies were made to feel so ashamed of their choices or life that they didn't write their stories down. If they did, they probably are long gone. Oh, a lot of the ladies working within the acres went by aliases or nicknames while working within Hell's Half Acre, which makes trying to find information on them that much harder. And for those who didn't get to marry and move on with their life, they, were, they stayed and they lived the best that they could. But what we do have is public records and archival newspapers. So what Webb was able to do is go into the records and newspapers and put together a list of ladies who lived and worked within the acre. So I'd like to introduce you to some of those ladies of the night. However, of course, these records aren't the happiest. It's not like their arrest records or news articles painted these girls in the best of light. You don't often get an arrest record for something good, and newspaper headlines aren't notorious for being happy. My goal for paying for it is to talk and learn about the historical ladies of the night, but never to pity or make them seem less than. They lived their lives feeling that way, and I feel like it would be disrespectful to them now in death to paint them that way. I respect these ladies, and I truly am curious about their choices and life. So as I go through this list of women and the headlines written about them, please remember, these were real women and girls who had to deal with 
the hand that they were dealt with. Some may have chosen and loved this life. Some may have been forced. Some may have been tricked. But that doesn't change the facts that these were girls and women who had real feelings, likes, and thoughts. They weren't dirty, unlovable, just because of their choices. And again, I will repeat, I respect them for their hustle and their ability to live in a time period that was not easy for anyone, but especially a woman who is considered fallen. All right, with that being said, let's talk about some of the ladies who worked within the acre and why they made the newspaper. On November 28th, 1976, the Daily Standard reported that Idella Midwinter, or Reed, we're not sure exactly what her last name was, was involved in another case of poisoning, probably fatal. Now, I wish I had more information on this one. Was she the one doing the poisoning? Did she get poisoned? Or was she, like, what was happening here? Who got poisoned? And if she did do the poisoning, who and why did she poison them? December 28th, 1876, the Fort Worth Democrat reported on the passing of Helen Frost, who passed in the infirmary. infirmary. January 11th, 1878, the Fort Worth Democrat reported on the death of Belle Fenn, Fannin, Fannin, whose death was due to being a victim of human brutality. This is sadly something that happened often, where... Isn't it still the case where, you know, men have temper and they don't know how to cope with that temper and someone, usually a woman, gets hurt? Don't come for me. It is just the facts of life. Jess Campbell died in the red light district on April 24th, 1878. Rest in peace, Jess. Sadie Pike made the Fort Worth Democrat on November 17th, 1880 due to more morphine. Now, that's just the headline, but does that mean she passed away? I'm not sure, but I'm assuming so. Katie Gammon made Dallas Weekly Herald September 21st, 1882 for simply being in Fort Worth. So, I'm assuming that that means this was a woman who hadn't been seen there before, and this was just to out her and make it public news that she was seen there ruining her socially. Could this have been true? Could it have been fake? Who knows? Was it someone just trying to be petty and ruin her life? Very possible. We'll never know. I hope she made the best of it though. Fort Worth Daily Democrat, May 2nd, 1883, reports on Kitty Birch and the title reads, Another Row in the House Half Acre. I'm assuming, again, this is a girl who wasn't part of the acre and has been seen in the acre. July 6th, 1883, the Fort Worth Daily Gazette reports on Maggie Weaver, who was one of the two soiled doves engaged in a fight, one stabs the other. That is crazy how it was reported. They were in their news articles and police reports, they were often referred as soiled doves and not by name. I'm assuming that Maggie was the one who did the stabbing. I'm not sure if the other lady came out alive. 
July 27, 1883, Susie Haywood is reported for cracking a joint, which I have no idea what that means. I wish I did. I'm assuming it has something to do with drugs. I am not sure. If anyone else knows, let me know. August 26, 1884, Maddie White's preliminary trial started. I'm assuming she either did something in the acre or she was fighting her charges on being uh, caught within the acre. Blanche Williams is on criminal the criminal calendar, which is that a thing still today? I'm not sure, but she was on the criminal calendar, so that means her trial was coming up soon. And really, if you were a woman and you were getting, you were on trial, you were part of the Hell's Half Acre. Dallas Daily uh, Herald reports on May 2nd, 1885, Lou Bell and Bella Williams, and there were against gambling, singular slashing. That was the title. I'm assuming they were pissed off about gambling, so they went in and started slashing things up. <laughs> I can't imagine exactly what that means. Greta Williams was arrested on September 4th, 1886 for being on the streets. This is not allowed. It was never part of... This was like the biggest, lowest of the low. Like if you were walking the streets you were, and you got caught... Yeah, that's why you wanted the protection of a madam because you were in a house. They ran them as female boarding houses, which gave them, they paid taxes and pretended like they were proper ladies, even if they were in acres, even if the law knew exactly what it was happening. It just looked better. It kept it neat. They had a semi-rules to follow, but if the ladies walking on the streets, hi, my baby, this is nightmare. <laughs> if the ladies walking on the streets uh, were caught, yeah, they were reported on as being walking the streets. If you're watching on YouTube, my little buddy, my little cat came to say hello. He's been over on Bookshift, so I'm sorry if you've been hearing him in the background. He likes all the attention. This one's, a, yeah, so this one's a bit confusing, but Mary Bowles is reported on March 11th, 1887 for callback. I don't know what that would mean. I just know that she got called back. <laughs> Speaking, we mentioned Emmeline Gooden earlier, the she-devil of, uh, the she-terror of the third world, was one to look out for. She seemed to not care about her reputation and was reported on quite a bit. Here are some of the headlines for her. A third word terror, I'm assuming just because she got in a lot of trouble. Half acre amusement because she liked to party. Wide open town. And a cutting a, uh, cutting a Ferrari, Aferrari in the world, ward. So I'm assuming wide open town and cutting Aferrari in the ward is just meaning more ways to say she was out there having a good time and uh, making some money. She sounds like a fun girl to be around. Emmeline Gordon, I hope you had a good life. Della Evans was stabbed by another woman on October 27th, 1887. Like I mentioned, 
there was a lot of cat fights and the madams really did try to keep the fighting to a minimum but it happened and cattiness happens and when there's all drugs alcohol and partying and no loss fights are bound to happen that is just the same as the guys who are gambling partying too and losing a lot of money and not happy about it emma pin miss jim lewis's lewis so here's the thing if you were married to anyone you no longer were really referred to as your name you took on his name so that's why we have that's emma pin was miss jim lewis um she committed suicide january 19th 1888 sadly a lot of husbands would sometimes force their women into prostitution one because they couldn't get money or they needed someone to help them supply their drug habits or their gambling habits and yeah so it is sad it did happen it is part of our history and i'm not going to try to sugarcoat it on march 13th 1883 headlines read sad and terrible tragedy about maggie estates later in september it is reported that maggie estates was dead Eva Pearl appealed her charges on June 8th, 1888. So she was appealing whatever charges came against her, most likely due to prostitution and probably because she was forced into it or someone. Because this was a time where your neighbor could really start a rumor and it could be based in zero facts. But if the rumor spread, which it most likely often did because people liked to talk, it would become true. June 16th, 1888, Maddie Blair committed suicide. Bella Calso is reported on December 6th in 1888 to be in a, involved in a suicide craze and then reported again to be a part of a patrol wagon in December 17th, 1888. Something that would happen during these times, which is quite horrible, is that police would put these um, patrol wagons together and parade soiled doves through town to shame them. Rachel Brown and Parley Steele were also a part of that suicide craze which I could get, I wish I could get more information on because it is, what is it even a suicide craze or something more, was it even a suicide craze or was it something more sinister? I mean, it just seems weird to me. Laura White passes on April 17th, 1889. Rest in peace, Laura White. Jenny Vincent is involved with an acre killing and the Con Hines case. Annie Edmonds in the uh, was involved in the Twimming murder case. Pearl Hathaway, a young woman, takes morphine. Rest in peace, Pearl. Laura Jackson, woman of town, takes acid and dies on May 2nd, 1904. Bessie Williams 
also seemed to be one who gave zero shits because on November 11th, 1912, her and another girl attempt to break out of jail by digging a tunnel. She continues to make headlines a lot by escaping from jail over eight times, which hilarious. <laughs> Hazel May Woolley and her husband are charged under the White Slavery Act on January 16, 1918. This one kind of makes me ugh, uncomfortable because that means that they were charged for like transporting people for prostitution. I just hope it wasn't their children. Husband of Myrtle Shepherd is charged for transporting wife for prostitution. Another case of a man forcing a woman to do something she probably didn't want to do. Bess Ford and Margaret Glasgow are two others and two others are arrested in a vice raid on March 21st, 1918. But no men were arrested, just ladies. Disorderly house complaints were filed against Stella Mannering on Jan July 22nd, 1918. And those are some of the ladies that made headlines. And of course, their headlines don't paint them in the best of light. But this is the information we know on them and what we can find. Here's a quick list of the ladies who were arrested and charged for solicitation and who were reported on local papers of the time, just for solicitation. It's a list, so bear with me, but I feel like it um, needs that we need to speak their names because they helped our history along. Emma Bishop, Janie Thompson, Stella Clements, Mary Somerville, Nellie Rumbold, Laura Davis, Aura Hamilton, Chas Rains, Lucy Moore, M. Everett Hart, Jay Keeves, Maddie Washington, Rachel Brown, Laurel Jackson, Laurel White, Floris, Florence McCommerce, Greta Besley, Roxy Allen, George Harris, Lily Sales, Helen Fisher, Tommy Peters, Alice Hoover, Idell Smith, Lolel Largent, <laughs> Jessie May Brock, Ella Bequet, Mary Adele, Germina Richards, Josephine Cannon, Ada Meek, May Thompson, Rose Holbrook, Maybelle Dunlap, Hattie Wellholt, Eva Kamel, May Churchill, Ella May Holloway, Ruth Brown, Virginia Deneen, Irene Brown, and Margarita Gagales. These are some of the ladies who worked lived, died, and thrived within the acre. We don't get to hear about their successes, their happy moments, or what they enjoyed about in their life. But their names deserve to be spoken in our history. Their names deserve some sort of respect. And even if you don't respect their career choice or their life past, they are still a human. They were still someone who deserved more than what they got out of life 
or even if they got everything that they wanted in that time in life, they still deserved a little bit more respect than we like to give them. So that was some of the ladies who worked within the acre who were not madams. They were just part of the day-to-day life in prostitution. Webb was also able to gather a list of madams who are known to operate with their business within Hell's Half Acre, and I would like to also speak their names. Les Summers, Maddie Johnson, Dutch Rose, Josie Belmont, Katie Raymond, Madame Brown, Mary Porter, who has the longest charged list on there, uh, Jesse Weaves, Annie Wheeler, Natty Davis, Grace Lace, Dolly Love Wilson Ray, Pearl BB, Mabel Thompson, or Pearl BB and Mabel Thompson. They also had a pretty extensive charge list. So I'm assuming that Mary Porter. Pearl BB and Mabel Thompson were three very prestigious madams, and their houses probably were considered very high class, and that's why they have the charges, a lot of charge, and a lot of it is just like the same charge, like solicitation, running the house of ill repertoire. So, you know, that those fines add up a lot. Mm. Mildred Cliffordton, Miss E.C. Brown, Alice Goodkin, Georgia Finn, Pauline Robbins, Addie Petty, Ethel Merrifield, France Brown, Annie Thompson, Manny Robinson, Ella Papaz, Miss G.S. Amari, Evelyn Irving, Martha Harmson, Ollie Amar, Ella Grease, Goldie Scott, Miss S.L. Adair, Martle Kirk, Ida Michelle, Alice McCarty, Luthor, 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 Taylor, Jesse Lamont, J.B. Pillard, Lucille Warren, Miss Z.M. Casey, Ivory Canoli, Bessie Canon, Georgia Carroll, Aura Hammer, Daisy Sherard, Mabel Palmer, jo- Joelle Durkin, E.W. Bacchus, Myrtle Lane, Janata, Janata Harris, and Hazel Penn. These are the ladies of Fort Worth Hells Half Acre. The ladies whose names are never, ever spoken in history. And never, ever spoken in history of the Acre or Fort Worth, even though they held an important part of why Hells Half Acre and what it was and why Fort Worth was able to become what it is today. They paid the dues, some with their money, but some with their money and their lives. I can't help but to think how things would have gone differently for the ladies of the acre if they were able to retire and move on without being shunned from society. What shame they wouldn't hold, what shame society wouldn't have held for them. But that is pretty much it for Hell's Half Acre. And I want to thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed this look into Hell's Half Acre and the ladies who thrived or didn't thrive within it. 
I'm going to link Webb's thesis down below if you would like to read it. It was very informative and was incredibly fascinating to me to be able to read about the ladies who resided there in the acre. I think that the article headlines can really shed light on how outcasting and turn the nose down to you it was back then for the women of that time period. Also, how easy it was for a girl or woman to find herself in a situation where she no longer had other options. Please like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening on podcast platforms, please leave a review and jump over to YouTube and watch the video version. I add visuals and make funny faces. And until next time, I hope you have a great rest of your evening. And I'll be back next Friday. We'll be taking a look at the last madam of New Orleans. Bye!